So if you'll turn to Mark chapter 9, and we'll continue continue our thoughts as we progress through the Gospel of Mark, which we've been preaching through the Gospel of Mark for several weeks now, maybe even months. I found out a few weeks ago that Tracy was doing the same thing. He's teaching, preaching through uh, the book of, or the Gospel of Mark, only he's going slower. He's, he's plodding through, and uh, I said, I, I don't like... I like to plod when I study, but I don't like to plod when I'm preaching. So I'm trying to I'm trying to move it along fairly quick. Um, and uh, well, sometimes it just doesn't work. I thought for a while here this morning we might get stuck on just one verse, but uh, I, I think we'll be okay. So Mark chapter nine, and we're going to begin reading with verse one. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Now, this passage is interesting passage. I think most of us are quite familiar with it. Uh, we just call it the transfiguration, which is, um, uh, I think, a little bit sad because it's more than a transfiguration. It, it, it exceeds even beyond that by quite a lot. And really, when you know, we got to come back and we got to bring the whole context. Where has Jesus been with his disciples? What has he been teaching them? And what is he? This all this leading up to. When we come to this event on this mountain where he is transfigured before his disciples. Well, as we noted a couple of weeks ago, back in chapter 8, when Jesus began asking the disciples a long series of questions. And all of those questions were designed to, as a, basically as a rebuke to the disciples because they had been with him for quite some time at this point. They had observed all of his uh, miracles that he had performed and casting out of unclean spirits and so on. 
And they had yet failed to grasp the spiritual implications of what Jesus was intending for them to understand. We would just say they just didn't get it. Not to say that we would have been any better or we would have grasped it any more than they did. But they didn't comprehend what Jesus was trying to teach them. So, having said that, down in verse 22, we noticed of chapter 8, we noticed that the next event on the scene was the healing of a blind man. Now, when you heal a blind man, what happens? He sees. And the whole event, it appears, was to show that if I can make this blind man see, why is it that you disciples cannot see what I'm trying to teach you? And they just didn't see it. They saw physically with the eye all of these things, but they couldn't perceive or comprehend spiritually what the lesson was all about. So after that, it says then that... um, Jesus asked the disciples a very probing question. Who do men say that I am? Now, you, hopefully, you, if you follow what's been going on, you'll see that Jesus is leading up to something because after all this time and their lack of perception, he's about to, as it were, nail them. <laughs> he's about to elicit from them a declaration of who he is and get from them a verbal commitment that he indeed was the Messiah. And then Jesus proceeds to tell them what the implications were of one who chose to follow Jesus or one who chose not to. So he says, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, he's John the Baptist, Elijah, whoever, you know. And he said, then he turns and says, well, who do you say that I am? And they said, of course, well, you're, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Well, that was what Jesus wanted to hear. Because now, now he could tell them about what was to come, which they still didn't grasp, of course, that he was going to be suffer at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders and be killed and then be raised on the third day. And verse 32 of chapter 8 says, he spoke this word openly and Peter began to rebuke him. Rebuke him. Why? Because evidently they were looking for an immediate response on the part of Jesus to establish the kingdom right then. And then Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter. And he tells him, get behind me, Satan. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. You're being an adversary to me and my ministry and the things that I was sent to do by my father. And so he called the people in verse 34 and his disciples, and this is where we were last week, when he said to them, 
If any man will come after me, or whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And we said that word lose means destroy it. If you will take away from your own life, destroy it in the sense of giving up, the things that you have or had and would follow Jesus. He said, you'll save it. But whosoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You might ask yourself the question, and I think probably legitimately the question should arise right now, save it for what? And if we understand where Jesus has been coming from, from the outset of his ministry, when it said back in chapter 1 that Jesus began preaching and teaching the gospel of the kingdom, it is simply that he was moving his disciples along as he went about his ministry. So you got this one layer of things that are going on with the populace, the population, the citizens of Galilee especially. Then you've got another layer here where he's wanting his disciples to pick up on the lessons that he's trying to teach them through these various encounters. And so when he comes to this, this verse here, when he states this thing about um, losing your life for my sake and the gospels and you will save it, how can he save it? And save it for what? I think the legitimate answer is you'll save it for my kingdom. You'll save it for the age to come. That's the most obvious thing. You will save it at the judgment seat of Christ and you will not be condemned, but you will rather hear words of affirmation like, well done. And you will receive praise and honor and glory at that time. But you see, that's not a guarantee. That's why he said, taking up your cross. A cross, as we noted, meant one thing to a Jew. Matter of fact, it meant one thing to everybody in the Roman world. They knew what a cross was. It just was, you could put cross equals death. That's all that it meant. And so it meant death to self. Dying to self. Now, When he goes on down here in verse 38, if you're ashamed of me and my words, he says, then I'm going to be ashamed of you. That's a a horrid thought to think that if I'm standing before the judgment seat of my Lord and he has to speak to me in a manner in which I have to hang my head and bow in utter shame because of the way I have lived my life. And Paul said as much. Paul said as much the same in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. Paul says, I make my body my slave so that... So that what? So that he would not be, the King James says, a castaway that the word is disapproved, that I wouldn't be disqualified, that I could stand before my Lord and hear him say, well done, that I won't be disqualified or disapproved. 
I want to be a part of his kingdom. And so you see then, he says, when he comes in the glory of his father with his holy angels. Now, you see then chapter 9, and. The word there is a Greek word that is a connective. It just means continuing on. It's not one that means but, like a new thing is happening. It's just a continuing thought. So from that chapter to this chapter, he says, And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, Assuredly. Or if you have another translation, it might say, Verily. It's the word, Amen. True. True. That's when we say, Amen. Whether we're singing a song and it's the last of the song, or whether you say amen when the pastor is preaching, you're saying true. What you just said is true. And so that was, this was designed totally to catch the, the mind of the disciples. What he was about to say, truly. Verily, I'm saying to you. So they were going to zero in on this. And he says, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present or having come with power. Now that's an interesting statement and a perplexing one. Uh, and has perplexed many and did me for a long time. <laughs> uh, how can this be? How could this be that when the kingdom of God hasn't really arrived yet, not in its manifestation, Jesus is not here on a throne ruling over the earth, how is it that they would not taste death? And by the way, the word taste there is the, a word that just means... Um, to gain the full experience of it. It's the same word used in Hebrews chapter 9, or excuse me, chapter 2 and verse 9, where it says there that he would taste death for every man. That meant he would taste death to its fullest extent. And so he's telling the disciples, nobody here is going to taste death the fullest extent of death until, he says, they see the kingdom of God. Now, how would they see the kingdom of God? How would they understand it? What could he possibly be talking about there? And by the way, Luke and Matthew and their accounts all use the same word, taste of death. So it's talking about physical death, actual dying. Um, and Luke tells us the same thing that Mark says until they see the kingdom of God but Matthew says until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom so it was a comprehensive thing about this coming the fullness of this coming kingdom how would it appear and what would it be like well um, he also says that 
the kingdom will be manifested in power. Now, only Mark says this. It'll be, ha- be present or having come with power. Now, if you go looking through the scriptures, you'll find power is associated with the kingdom over and over and over. And quite frankly, I think you say, well, I'm not surprised at that. You would expect that. Anybody who has a kingdom, anybody who's a ruler, you can associate power with that. But I want you to go ahead and listen to a few scriptures anyway. And I'm reading from the the Holman uh, Christian Standard right now. Uh, In um, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 20, Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And you'll notice, even though there are many other things associated with the kingdom, he really associates it here with one thing, power. In uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter says, We did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Um, you know, Peter, well, let me go ahead and read verse 17 while I'm at it, and 18. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, a voice came to him from the majestic glory. This is my beloved son. I take delight in him. And we heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So, Peter is referring back to this very scene, this very incident in Mark's gospel, which is also in Matthew and Luke's gospels, about the coming glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, when you know that Peter quoted that and used this in the letter that he was writing to the early church, then you will know that the early church understood that this event here was about... uh, in times implications about the coming of Jesus, about the establishing of his kingdom. Now, and of course, a mountain is a type of a kingdom. So he says there, after six days, Jesus took or led Peter, James, and John. He led them up on a high mountain. Now, there are a couple of things to note about a high mountain. Number one, a mountain, a high mountain in particular, was a place where revelation from God typically occurred. You remember how Moses went up on a high mountain, and there God revealed himself and revealed his word and the commandments to Moses, and they were written in stone upon Mount Sinai. You remember Jesus went up on a mountain to teach his disciples on what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And there he taught the words of God to his disciples, the principles of his kingdom. Now, it's also not just where revelation occurred, but it's also a type or a mountain as a figure of a kingdom itself. Um, Over in Daniel chapter 2, um, if I lose my place here, I don't know where it is. <laughs> Man, have I ever gotten off my notes again? Oh, here we go. Let me go looking for it here. 
Yeah, I know, I know the verses. I, I got it in my notes. I want to find it and read it so I didn't have to turn over there. Okay. There it is right there. What's it doing way down there? Okay, here we go. <laughs> this is going to be fun. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 2 verse 35 says, Then the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away, and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So the stone that struck the great mountain, which was representative of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, totally destroyed it, and this great mountain then filled the whole earth. Um, And that... Verses 44 and 45 says there that uh, uh, um, the statue that's in verse 35, again, I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard, uh, became a great mountain and filled the whole earth, which is, which is a kingdom. And over in Jeremiah chapter 51 and verse 25, the Lord said, look, I am against you, devastating mountain. Now here he's speaking about Babylon. Now, Babylon was not located, and this is a significant, I think. Babylon was not located on a mountain. They were located out on a, on a flat plain. But notice what he says. I am against you, devastating mountain. This is the Lord's declaration. You devastate the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you, roll you down from the cliffs, and turn you into a charred mountain. <laughs> so he... He's just simply referring to the figure of a kingdom as a mountain, even though it was not physically located on a mountain. Now, um, yeah, I got out of my notes. I got them out of order here. (laughs) Let me see if I can get back to where I want to be. Okay. So they came apart. They went up on a high mountain apart by themselves and he was transfigured before them or transformed metamorphosed just where we get our English word metamorphosis he was changed in his form in his appearance to something different And it tells us there that his clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Matthew says that his face became white and shining and glimmering. So what was the whole point there? The entire person of Jesus was changed right before the very eyes Remember back there in 2 Peter? He said we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Right before their very eyes, he was transfigured before them. And they saw his glory. And he he says there that it was exceedingly white. That is to say, there is no white on this earth that could compare to the white of Jesus' clothes and his face. 
As a matter of fact, he says, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Or, as the King James says, no fuller. Now, a fuller is an old English word for a launderer. And if you meet up with somebody and their last name is Fuller, then you can understand what their forebears' occupation was. <laughs> they were launderers. Like a smith, right, Jeff? A smith was a smithy, <laughs> did iron work or worked in a blacksmith shop or something. Now, included in this scene with the appearance of Jesus and his face and his clothes and all of this majesty surrounding him, all of a sudden on the scene also appears Elijah and Moses. Now you can imagine, matter of fact, it's, um, I think it was, Matt, or I don't remember if it was Matthew's account or Luke's account, says they fell on their face. They fell down, prostrate, afraid, with fear and trembling because of what was taking place before them. And I'm trying to imagine in my own mind what that must have been like to be on that mountain and then to have this cloud move in over them. So Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus, and Peter answered and said, now, just as we would expect, of all the people to speak up, we expected Peter to do it. And he said, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Why did he say that? Well, I think, again, the whole idea of making tabernacles associated with the Feast of Tabernacles, in other words, booths, just like they made at the Feast of Tabernacles, had to do with their idea that they thought Jesus was going to establish the kingdom right then and there. And they were fully expectant of that. Well, it says he did that because he didn't know. <laughs> he didn't know what to say because they were greatly afraid. Um, have you ever been in a situation like that? Do you ever get in those kind of situations where you're in a conversation and suddenly things go quiet and you feel like you, you just got to say something to keep the thing going and keep the conversation rolling? Um, it gets uncomfortable if nobody says anything. Well, that was Peter. And this cloud comes over them. A cloud came and overshadowed them. The same cloud that came over the tabernacle, the same cloud that led Israel throughout the wilderness, this same cloud of glory overshadowed all those that were on this mountain. Peter, James, John, Elijah, Moses, Jesus. And notice what happened then. A voice came out of the cloud saying, this happened earlier in Mark's gospel. In chapter 1, at the baptism of Jesus, a voice came from heaven. That lets us know that he was speaking with authority. And he said, this is my beloved son, hear him. Now, I want us to go, um, I'm, I'm just having to skip over some things here. But I want us to go for an important thing here back to, uh, if I can get to it. Um, I'm going to skip all of that. 
And I'm going to go, uh, yeah, Matthew chapter 17. Turn there, if you would, Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. This is, um, this is Matthew's account of the transfiguration. And you, you've got a fuller expression of this same, um, this same voice speaking out of the cloud. He says, this is my beloved son. And you'll notice the additional phrase, in whom I am well pleased, hear him. Now, I like what Graham Scroggie had to say regarding that phrase because it was representative of the, the, psalm, the, the Psalms and the law and the prophets. And if you turn back to Psalm chapter 2, you'll find there that it says, in Psalm 2, in verse 7, it says, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. And that, of course, found in the Psalms, is expressive of one complete division of the Old Testament scriptures. And then we have another expression taken from the law. And that was taken from, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 42 and verses 1 and 2 where um, the writer says, This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I delight in him. Matthew says, In whom I am well pleased. So we have the Psalms represented, and we have the law represented. And then, over in Deuteronomy, chapter 18, and verse 15. Excuse me, I said law is prophets. Isaiah is part of the prophets. Deuteronomy is a part of the law. And Deuteronomy 18, 15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers, you must listen to him. Hear him. All three major divisions of the Old Testament scriptures, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets, are represented in this fuller expression that Matthew gives us over Mark's account. Mark's is much briefer. Now, having said that, All of a sudden, the cloud's gone. All of a sudden, the glow on his face and his garments is gone. And everything reverts back just to the way it was. And you'll see there in verse 18, he says they looked around and they saw no one anymore but only Jesus with themselves. I, I don't know. I'm still picturing them laying on the ground. I'm still picturing them, you know, cowering down, looking around, trying to see what's going on. And all of a sudden they realize they're by themselves again with Jesus. Now, the next event that takes place, they're coming down from the mountain. And he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, they're hearing this for the second time now about the resurrection till the son of man had risen from the dead now you'll note that they picked up on it this time they recognized 
something here. So notice in verse 10 what it says. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. The word kept is a very strong verb. It's like they seized on it. They grabbed a hold of this whole thing about the resurrection, and they began to discuss that among themselves. What does the resurrection mean? Now, they were not ignorant. They knew all about resurrection. Every Jew knew about resurrection. Not all of them believed in it. The Sadducees didn't. But the Pharisees did and the scribes did. They knew what resurrection was. As a matter of fact, over in John chapter 11, you know, it says there, you know, concerning the account with uh, Mary and Martha, and he, and he addresses Martha and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And, and in verse 22, he says, yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And so what did Jesus say to her? Your brother will rise again. Notice the next verse. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So this was not something they were unfamiliar with. They knew about resurrection. Why were they discussing resurrection here? For the same reason of their expectation that Jesus was going to come and establish his kingdom without having to go through suffering and death and having to rise from the dead. And so they couldn't comprehend that. How was this going to happen in such a short time? Well, following on that, they said, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Well, in verse 12, he answered and told them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. Now, if you look back at Malachi chapter 4, Malachi chapter 4, and you shouldn't have to turn too far back. Sometimes I think, well, you just jump way back in the Old Testament. Well, it's the last book right before Matthew. So you get to Malachi chapter 4, and really, if I read chapter 3 and verse 1, Jesus, or Jesus, Malachi said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So we're talking about Elijah. In chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Malachi says this, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel, with the statutes and judgments? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now there's an immediate fulfillment here in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus and John the Baptist. And then there is a further fulfillment that will take place at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, how do we... How do we reconcile all of that? Because he said, indeed, Elijah is coming and restores all things. And then he says down in verse 13, But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. 
Well, simply this, I think, I think, it says, as it is written of him. Where is it written about Elijah? Other than our passage there in Malachi that says these things. Look back, if you would, to 1 Kings in chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. Now, it's a, kind of an extended passage here. So we may just look at a couple of verses here. But this is the incident with Ahab where he told Jezebel all that Elijah had done in verse 1. Also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba. Elijah, running for his life, Jezebel saying, God, let the gods do so to me if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow. In other words, Elijah, you're going to be dead. And so he took off running. Now, he takes off and finally down in verse 10, it says in verse 9, the word of Yahweh came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Now, the only thing that makes any sense to me there is that if we see what happened to Elijah as a type of what occurred in the life, and it was actually carried out in the life of John the Baptist, him being Elijah in type, fully experienced everything that was said by Jezebel, that I will make your life as one of the prophets by morning or else, or else. And that's exactly what happened to John the Baptist. He was beheaded. He did lose his life. He did come as a messenger. He did proclaim and make way, as we saw back in chapter 1, the way of the Lord and prepared the way for him. And he did all of those things. But then it says something else. It says that, and I shouldn't have left my place there. It says there in chapter 4 and in and, and, and verse 6, at the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, at the last part of that verse that I read, uh, it says there that he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children when? Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Will Elijah come again even after 
coming in type in the person of John the Baptist? And I think the answer is yes. Yes, he will come. And his ministry, it says, will be one of turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. What's the whole point of all of that? To preach a gospel of repentance, of turning back to the Lord, of making preparation for the coming of Jesus to the establishing of his kingdom. And so he will have a ministry during that period of tribulation. That's why some think those two witnesses in Revelation, one of them is Elijah. Maybe. And could very well be. So I say, this whole scene was meant to climax with the disciples after having been rebuked after having been challenged regarding who Jesus was as the, the, and identifying him as the Christ, the Messiah, and then having challenged them regarding taking up their cross and being a genuine follower of Jesus, he now is in a position where he can reveal the majesty and the glory of his kingdom. And that's why when he led them up this mountain, And they were very in a private, secured place by themselves that God the Father, speaking from heaven, and by the way, the verb there is passive. He was transfigured. It indicates that God is the one who changed the form of Jesus. He didn't change himself, in other words. It's a passive verb. So he did it. And all of this took place to be evidence to the disciples of what Jesus' ministry was about and about the coming of his kingdom. Now, they still don't grasp it all yet. They still don't comprehend, but it's coming. They're going to get it. Oh, man, are they ever going to get it. They are going to get it to the full. But we got some ground to cover before we get there. Let's pray. Our Father, we do want to lift up our hearts with joy and thanksgiving, and praise, and honor unto that name, which is above all names, and to the King of kings, and to the Lord of lords, and to recognize that in this world there are many kings, and there are many lords, but there's only one Jesus, and it's he who will come in his glory to rule this earth, and he will sit on the throne of his glory. Father, we look with anticipation to know that when he comes, that we want to be accepted of him, that we would be willing cross-bearers, even to the death, whether it would be laying down our lives now in giving up the affairs of this life or whether it be actual death. I pray, God, that you would help us to be strong, strong in that faith. And that we would not waver. And that our hearts would be fixed, like the psalmist said, fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, to have hearts that are fixed on him. Let it be so, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. And the Lord God bless you.